Welcome to episode 10 of the Tech Bubble, our end of year show. Once again, sadly, we are back in lockdown mode, but that's not going to get us down. Nope. We have a lot to discuss, including a retrospective analysis of all the tech which has been making the headlines in 2020. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, Ian Williamson, and today we have an exclusive Digital Leadership Council panel. I think that that's the first time that we've done that in all of the episodes today, and kind of apt as well, because it's our 10th anniversary show already. Yep, 10 shows down, quite incredible, really, given the trials and tribulations of the last 12 months. So well done to everyone involved. Thanks, Mr. Williamson. Um, hi, this is Chloe Jazzy Lau, co-host of the Tech Bubble, coming to you with a friendly reminder, as always, that you can now listen to all of our podcast episodes on Anchor, Spotify, and the SIS YouTube channel. So today we're delighted to be welcoming no less than five colleagues from the DLC onto our show. First up, a seasoned Tech Bubble contributor. He is a key member of the Tech Review team, and he has been starting off our last few episodes, dear listeners. So. Paul from 13N2 is here with us today. Great to have you back, Paul. Uh, pleasure to be here once again. Thank you, Chloe and Mr. Williamson. Thank you. And as always, we welcome back our regular pundit, veteran of the tech bubble, and Namas House Captain, Rowan Williamson from 12N2. What's up, Rowan? Well, I heard it's Christmas soon, Chloe, so I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much for having me back on the show as always. Glad to have you here. Another one of our tech review trio today joining us is Maxine Yang from 13B2. Busy, I'm sure, preparing for her mock exams in January. Yikes. How are things going, Maxine? Pretty chaotic. Uh, the year of 13 has had quite a few responsibilities I don't think I was quite prepared for, but otherwise all doing good. So thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. And last but not least, the final member of our trio from 12S2, Ryan Mack. Great to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Um, hang on a minute. Haven't we forgotten somebody, Chloe? I don't think so. I, I think that's all the guests. But uh, I think we promised that we'd let Jessica out of the editing dungeon today to join the show. Uh, have we forgotten? Who's going to edit the show then? Oh, that's a good point, isn't it? Maybe we just don't tell her? Hello everyone, uh, Jessica here. The, the light's a bit blinding, but god, it's glorious. Jessica, we were just coming to get you. Wow, the first time that you've seen daylight since January. Welcome back to the light. This is a pretty emotional moment for, for everyone on board of the, the tech bubble. Jessica, editor extraordinaire, returns to the surface world after 10 months. Welcome back, Jessica, and um, 2020, where do we start? What a year it has been on so many different levels that to be honest, I really don't even know where to pinpoint a starting place to start our discussion. Well, I would say for me, Chloe, we should start by thinking about how things have changed at school, both in terms of students and teachers. For instance, the dreaded word Zoom has become an everyday part of conversation in 2020, leading to the continuation of synchronous learning opportunities. But uh, let's be honest about it, not without a few problems along the way. For sure, and perhaps this is a good place to open our floor to our guest today. Um, as we approach the end of 2020, where exactly are you in your relationship with online learning? Well, uh, on the bright side, at least I figured out how to mute myself on Zoom. Only took about 10 months, so I think that's a pretty good start, if you don't mind me saying so. Yeah, I think my relationship with Zoom has kind of changed as we've progressed through this year. Of course, we were using it very heavily 
certainly for my year group, year 11 last year, we were using it February all the way through until June, so it became my most used app, apparently, according to screen time, so that really does say something. And then there came a period of time where obviously we weren't using it as regularly. Once we'd been able to finally come back to school, what a glorious moment that was back in September. And we've sort of come back onto it again. And I think my emotions regarding Zoom have kind of changed as time has gone on. At first, I think it was something new, exciting, interesting to see how lessons were going to shape out. Uh, And then it started to become slightly monotonous towards the end of it, especially after our exams had been cancelled. But I guess there were some positives out of that as well. And starting off the year with Zoom was, I'd say, predictable. But nonetheless, you know, it was okay. Knowing that we would then be back in school quite soon was uh, quite refreshing. But I have to say, I am looking forward to my holidays now that we've only got a few days to go as of recording this show. So yeah, I would say my emotions with Zoom have fluctuated greatly over the course of the year. Uh, You know, it's just some form of working environment, so I'll take it, first of all. Uh, But being clear, in-person interactions at school is just simply irreplaceable. Uh, but nonetheless, I still feel lucky to have been able to study without that much harm done. At the very beginning in February, I think Rohan touched on it just now, I did feel somewhat miserable. It's like, oh my god, I am not going to enjoy this at all. I did feel that a few more times, but every time I thought that, uh, I just remembered how lucky I was to have, you know, even even if it's remote, some sort of uh, learning you know, environment. Uh, In my opinion, well, I'm a little bit of an outlier when it comes to my friend group, considering I've told them all that I absolutely actually love online learning. And uh, the reason I actually love online learning is, number one, because I live all the way on Llama, so that's about easily an hour of commute time, in my case at least, because the ferry schedule is kind of just horrible. So I either catch the 3.50 or I have to wait 40 minutes for the uh, 4.30 if I miss that ferry. So that is a major plus because now I have way more time to do studying. I have way more time to just chill when I get home. Uh, On that note as well, I've also had the ability to go into break times feeling much more refreshed in the morning because I can actually start cooking myself breakfast as well. Since usually in the mornings I'd have difficulty waking up and then I'd have to like run for the ferry and forget to get myself my food. But now I can actually like cook and it's helping me practice and it's doing all these great things. So honestly, I actually really appreciate that we managed to do this as well. Well, for me, like Maxine, I do enjoy being able like to not need to commute to school, which saves me like at least an hour and a half round trip a day. And also do like being able to wake up literally five minutes before class starts. But I feel that in general, I dislike online learning for one reason. And that reason is simply because you cannot replace interactions between students and teachers online and it's just something which you need to be in person at school in order to be able to feel and it's also gotten quite boring lately having been on zoom for like many months now but i mean i do feel that it is kind of good that we are at least able to continue with learning throughout this pandemic in a safe way and I mean, it's better than nothing, I guess. Well, I think we're all pretty consistent across the board. For me, it's kind of a love-hate relationship. Like, I love being able to roll out of bed literally five minutes before tutor time begins. But I do feel that I learn and I work better when I'm physically at school. I think it's something about the atmosphere that school creates and the presence of others that makes all the difference. 
However, I will say one thing that I think applies to all of us, and I think we have emerged more technologically literate out, out of this online learning experience than we were before. And not just students, I would say, Jessica, I would also say for staff as well. I mean, there's a lot of staff, and we've mentioned this in a few of our previous shows, who have had to adopt these kind of digital tools, which previously perhaps they'd have felt were a bit gimmicky or you know, didn't really deal with, with having to communicate and teach the content that is often so detailed in, in many of, for instance, the IB diploma courses that students have to face. For me, I would say that the year seems to be ending with a more balanced approach, shown towards the, you know, the synchronous versus the asynchronous learning activities. Even this week, uh, there's been a really big push, I think, on staff with the idea that you know, we need to protect student eyesight you know, when we're, we're, we're preparing tasks. We don't want students to be staring at a laptop screen for two hours a day. It's, it's as simple as that. And that, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And, and let's face it, the post-COVID world is likely to see some fairly major changes. I think it's already happening. So, for instance, you know, will student-led consultation evenings take place face-to-face again? One of the big pieces of feedback that we've had from um, many parents is that it's so much more convenient for parents who are in the workplace to just tune in you know, over an hour-long period into Zoom sessions rather than having to, you know, as uh, Maxine pointed out, being Uh, in traffic, having to commute across the city to then attend. So that could be one big change that comes in the future. You know, will will normal learning resume during a typhoon, albeit online? You know, there's there's an advantage. And could particular year groups perhaps go into an online setup for a short period of of time, maybe just to allow for some more sleep? I'm thinking about, you know, the kind of difficult term that the year 13s have just had. I'm sure Jessica and Maxine, you know exactly what I'm talking about there and perhaps offering the opportunity for a few days of, of catching up on your sleep. So just a few things to think about going forward there. What else has happened in 2020 outside of school? Chloe, we've had many discussions about the ethics of big tech in TOK lessons. It's been a controversial year when it comes to privacy, data, the list goes on. Yeah, indeed, this is my favorite part of the conversation that we're going to delve into. But I recently came across an article about how Google basically ousted its top AI ethicist that had been researching racial bias and algorithms uh, and facial recognition software. So this is a particularly salient conversation to be having now, you know, with the with the talk of social media's influence on the election and um, the doubling release of social the social dilemma leading to an overall increase in awareness in just how much power big tech leverages over our lives. Um, oh, I'd just like to jump in here really quickly with the one about racial bias and algorithms. I recently saw on Twitter how if you posted a big image, which was too big to be displayed all at once on Twitter preview, it would almost always default to showing the white man as the more interesting part of the image on the Twitter preview. So someone tested this with Mitch McConnell and Barack Obama on two opposing ends of the image. And almost every time Twitter would choose um, Mitch McConnell, who is white, to show us the preview of the image rather than Barack Obama, who is obviously black. They tested it with like white backgrounds, black backgrounds, and like putting the pictures on different sides of the image. And it was almost the same every time. So, I mean, there really is probably an issue of racial bias in like algorithms and that type of image selection and preview. I think what you've got there, though, is that's becoming more visible. The very fact that we're having these conversations in the tech bubble itself as part of our podcast, these are not necessarily things that are only being discussed in, in kind of discrete areas like media now. 
I think these are becoming very, very mainstream conversations. And I think they're only going to continue uh, as we go into 2021. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the issue with racial diversity and issues, especially in the US, on the issue of like racial bias and that type of thing will probably be a major talking point continuing on into next year as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. So, so Jessica, just following that discussion, I'd love to ask you, what role do you think big tech has played in our lives, especially in 2020? And where do you envision that moving forward in 2021? Right. So this year, uh, the two major events uh, amid the many, many, many events that's happened this year, I think most importantly was definitely COVID and the U.S. presidential elections. And therefore, I think misinformation has been a particularly serious problem for tech giants to tackle this year. I know that Twitter has been putting like little warning labels on Trump tweets, but they choose to not remove it or censor it because they are of public interest. And I think that's the case with, at least as Twitter says, it's the case with all politicians and leaders. And I read online that Facebook removed 12 million posts that were spreading misinformation about COVID between March and October. And in the future, they're looking to do so as the vaccine rolls out. I think then there is the question of should these companies be taking responsibility to, you know, regulate the content that is posted on their websites and amid arguments that this is against freedom of speech. But to an extent, I think yes, because misinformation in general can have very real, real life consequences. You know, people are actually dying as a result of choosing to believe the first thing they see on on social media or, you know, if a prominent person says something that aligns with their beliefs. And effectively, uh, these platforms, by giving the opportunity for everyone, regardless of their expertise and experience, to, to have a voice, which on paper sounds great because everyone is now equal and can contribute equally, uh, the consequences of misinformation and you know, de- dying truth and science have to be dealt with. The one thing that I, I kind of have a bit of an issue with there is the fact that 12 million posts, you know, Facebook removed. But this is an organization that has billions of users. It would be very interesting to know just how many posts um, are submitted on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis. But I agree with you. I think it is definitely a step in the right direction. But I mean, I think it's a drop in the water in terms of, you know, the the kind of scale of misinformation that's coming through social media uh, networks. I think the issue of like everyone's now equal is probably even more exemplified by the fact that a lot of people, especially conservatives who have recently been fact-checked and censored by Facebook and Twitter, have been trying to move to other platforms like Parler and MeWe, which sell themselves as free speech social networks. And that in itself creates a whole new problem as now if you use those platforms, not only will you not get any fact-checking at all, probably if you were to use those platforms, you would believe the first thing you see and likely what you see would not be true. Yeah, so this is really causing the issue of fact-checking to become really controversial, especially as a lot of issues have become politicized, like regarding COVID-19 and everything. And so even basic stuff like asking people to wear a mask could be seen by some people as a political statement. And when like Twitter tries to um, fact check comments which talk about election fraud, for example, some people are going to say that there was election fraud and that they shouldn't be fact checking these tweets because they're real and stuff. So the issue of what's real and what's not is also becoming a big issue for fact checking on these social media platforms. 
Well, what I find preposterous is basically, and I don't want to get too political here, but I know there are a lot of Trump supporters saying that every vote in the election was fraud and that they can't believe that Biden got 80 million votes because it has never been done in the history of the US, discounting the fact that in the weeks leading up to the presidential election, there were so many calls on social media telling people to vote. This is the phenomenon that, that they see in front of their eyes, but they choose to ignore. And Trump got 80 million votes too. I don't see what's so unbelievable about the Biden case as opposed to Trump. Yeah, so that really is causing a really huge issue because like, if people choose not to believe the truth and believe in alternate things that they might have saw on like some unreliable sources and take as true, like when they get backtracked on Facebook and they get angry, then I think that Facebook is trying to censor out like views who they don't agree with. And it's going to be really um, a huge political issue, I guess, coming as um, society is now getting more and more polarized, mm. politically speaking. I, I think what's interesting um, from your point, Ryan, is that almost this, this post-truth era and this alternative truth is being heralded as freedom of speech. So Mr. Williamson and I, we talked about this in TOK, but he chooses to filter out certain perspectives that are, are not helpful to our learning within TOK. For example, um, climate change deniers. Yes, that is a perspective. Um, they do have freedom of speech in order to express those perspectives, but it doesn't mean we necessarily have to take into account all of them. So, you know, with the face of the Republican Party changing from Trumpism and, and beyond into more polarizing points of the political spectrum, we have to think about how relative is, is news and perspectives really getting. So at this point of the conversation, I'd love to bring in um, the really thought-provoking documentary, The Social Dilemma. And that has really shed a light onto what it means for us to now be thoughtful users of social media, given our knowledge of its drastic consequences. So quick plug, dear listeners, if conversations like these interest you, we talk about this a lot in the DLC. So if you're interested, feel free to email uh, Mr. Williamson to join the DLC starting term two. Anyway, that aside, uh, Rohan, then Paul, what were your key takeaways from the documentary and what do you think, uh, how do you think that has shaped your perspective on social media and big tech? Did you find it was a stark reinforcement of what you had already suspected or were you particularly surprised by anything that you saw in the documentary? Well, first of all, for anyone who hasn't seen The Social Dilemma, you need to hit pause on this episode right now. Go create a Netflix account if you haven't already got one and watch it, because spoilers lie ahead, viewers. I repeat, spoilers lie ahead. So I'm going to give you three seconds to go, watch it, and then return to this podcast. You ready? Okay, then, now that everyone's up to speed, I found that after watching it, that it had reinforced a lot of the not-so-great things about technology and the fact that the majority of Americans, for example, use Facebook as their main news source was quite shocking for certainly me to sort of find out, especially when you consider the purpose behind the app is to connect with people, not to sort of inform them of sort of global issues going on at the moment. And not to mention that the role that the algorithms are playing in trying to keep us on our social media feeds for as long as possible to maximise those profits is quite a thought. I was also quite alarmed to discover that social media platforms have affected formal elections as well, and the explanation behind that as well sort of really hit home the power that Chloe had alluded to earlier that they have over us. 
And the message that I'd interpreted at the end of watching it was that social media apps are perhaps in control of us as opposed to the other way around, which I think was perhaps the most terrifying thought of all. And it did leave me, viewers, feeling slightly depressed where I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, technology sucks. But of course, that's a very biased tone that I think it's adapted throughout. Only the final 10 minutes or so were actually dedicated to discussing some of the positives of social media platforms, of technology in general, and what we can do to avoid the problems discussed. And it seemed to be that the solution was to delete our social media accounts. And that seems quite idealistic to me, because, you know, although, like I said before, I was feeling quite sort of down about that whole situation, and certainly the tone that was sort of addressed is that social media and technology generally has an incredible number of positives. We are able to create all of these shows through the power of technology. So there are loads of fantastic positives. So overall, I felt that there were quite a lot of certain emphasis on the negatives. And like I said, I thought that was perhaps quite biased. Uh, it was fascinating to watch in terms of what was being said by um, individuals who had been working within massive tech companies such as Twitter, Facebook, etc. However, I definitely felt there needed to be more positivity being included in terms of what tech is providing for us. But I understand that they were aiming to shock the audience as opposed to provide a more balanced sort of argument. But I feel that in order to truly call it a social dilemma, there did need to be a bit more balance involved. Uh, yeah, so I definitely agree with uh, Rohan that, you know, the social dilemma did definitely take like a more nuanced uh, approach to ex examining the role of so social media in our in our human lives. And I guess it also shows how simple it is to build algorithms that are specifically tailored to the user, but causes long-term issues that are potentially, you know, ir irreversible. While AI isn't human and doesn't feel anything, they're similar to humans in the sense that they start with absolutely nothing. And I think the social dilemma represented this uh, really well. Again, spoilers. I liked how the AI was in the process of learning about human behavior and virtuality and modeling algorithms out of them, just like a human, you know, trying to find patterns. And as we developed our own AIs tailored to ourselves through our own decisions online, we're giving slightly more authority over, you know, what we reveal to them. I don't know if this analogy works, but it's like giving a bit more information that you perhaps should have to someone you don't necessarily trust. And ultimately, the aim of these algorithms, you know, is earning money through ad revenue by getting more and more users on social media. And more spoilers, I'm really glad that they included Jerome Lanier in the production of the uh, documentary. About a year ago, I read his book called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Account Right Now. By the way, an amazing book. I recommend it to all of you, listeners included. And Jerome Lanier uses the acronym BUMMER. Behaviors of users manipulated and made into an empire for rents. If I can take a few moments to unpack that. So our behaviors have been altered in some way or formed through social media. Because my behavior definitely has, I'm sure some many of you here will relate. You know, the process of how social media is involved in building algorithms is simple. Promote users, collect the user's activity, and find patterns to try and model algorithms. 
as these algorithms get smarter and users fall into a bottomless rabbit hole of social media content, it manipulates their behavior generally affecting them in a negative way. In fact, the very first argument that Jerome Lanier uh, presents is you are losing your free will through the manipulation by these algorithms. And also I think, Ryan, I think you touched on this earlier, uh, the undermining of truth and uh, having various informations that contradict each other and everything. That's actually one of Jerome Lanier's arguments as well. Uh, social media undermines truth. And finally, the fact that social, the most access to social media is free is what propels tech giants to succeed in earning revenue as well as further developing its program. Pretty ironic. Uh, yeah, so like, I'd like to add on to uh, Paul's point about how um, the fact that social media is free and we're not paying for it means that when we're not paying for something, then we are the product. And so, for example, our data is constantly being gathered and sold to third parties and other adversaries we may not be aware of. And we just don't know what they're doing with our data. Like, they say it's just a targeted advertising, but how do you know it's not being used as something more sinister? So like whenever we're not, we're not paying for it with money, then we're probably paying for it in other ways. And I think another thing about the social dilemma that really highlights the issues of social media is how um, big tech is increasingly playing a bigger and bigger part in our lives, especially with social media and everything being moved online these days. And it's really creating like echo chambers. So like people are more and more unwilling to accept other people's viewpoints. So I think I recently read an investigation somewhere saying that for the first time, both Democrats and Republicans responded to a poll saying that they would just rather the side that they didn't agree with just die off so they wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. And I think it really does highlight the political polarization and it's probably partially caused by social media too. As on social media, the algorithms are tailored exactly to our interests to try and keep us on social media for as long as possible. And to do that, they give us what we like to see. So for example, if we've been reading a lot of um, liberal stuff on social media, then the algorithm is more than likely to suggest more liberal articles and people to follow so that we stay on for more. And we keep on reading and reading the same stuff that we agree with. And eventually it just gets to a point where we're not able to accept any other viewpoints. And I think that's really quite dangerous because the instant where we believe that all viewpoints except for ours is wrong, is when they really starts to get into a problem of not even willing to accept the truth. And I think the issue of this big tech and the algorithms is going to cause a lot of problems if it's not addressed promptly and appropriately. And this is nothing new, Ryan, either. The idea of uh, echo chambers. I mean, I remember teaching Eli Peritzia, who, who, who first sort of brought this to people's attention through a TED talk, probably about seven years ago in TOK lesson. This has been building for a number of years. I wanted to just briefly return to the point that Rohan was making, though, about the fact that the social dilemma itself, although it, it may well have been you know, morally well-motivated to try and bring about change, that in particular like the, the organization Humane that was featured uh, at the very beginning of the social dilemma and who are doing a lot of very, very good advocacy to try and encourage people to design tech products with an ethical context in mind and some kind of social good. I do also think that we need to remember that technology has played an enormously positive role in our lives as well. And that there is a sense of growing awareness, at least certainly in the circles that we 
we, we're in, and that's maybe part of the echo chamber where I think both students and staff alike are aware that spending huge amounts of time on, on social media is likely to start making you unhappy gradually over time. And yes, I still find it amazing when I look down MTR carriages and it's like you know something out of um, the film Metropolis from the 1920s where everyone is glued to digital devices. And there's a lot of benefit to come from that, but there's also, I think, a very isolated and individualistic experience that, that people are, are inhabiting, even when it's called social media. It's actually nothing of the sort when people are, as I say, isolated in their, in their, 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 their lives. Well, I mean, I guess there is that issue of how um, social media is making us connected, but just in a different way than we once were. So like now, instead of physically talking to people, we're talking to people by texts and calls and other stuff. Or, or we're not, or, or we're simply liking things. And, and also a lot of material online that gets, for instance, retweeted or is reposted that people aren't even reading. I think it's a positive thing that Twitter now prompt you about that. Have you read this article before you then retweet it? And there's been a couple of times recently where that's really given me pause for concern because I thought, you're looking at the title of something that you agree with and you're about to retweet it, perhaps with a little comment or something, but you have not been informed in terms of the, the comments that you're in. And in fact, actually, you're an advocate on behalf of something that you haven't read, which is, is not right, is it? It's, it's something that we all need to get better at. Yeah, just to quickly add on to that, I think Jessica mentioned um, misinformation and uh, about just just reposting without reading. And I think, you know, as you read more and more polarizing or more and more extreme forms of fake news, that you almost build up this sense of resistance to to misinformation or disinformation. Um, And it's essentially as if to some extent, the articles you read are no longer as extreme or the titles are no longer as extreme. And you're almost seeking something more exciting to feed into your confirmation bias in order to strengthen that worldview and and really reinforce that that echo chamber and those information silos you've built for yourself and your community around you. So I think that's it's just a very strong compounding effect that has very drastic consequences. Um, Jessica, you wanted to add something. I wanted to make two points, but before I forget, <laughs> I think partly it's to do with the convenience, I guess, now of being able to see a bunch of news sources on your timeline on Twitter or something or Facebook or something in the sense that you're not made to work for that information. You're not made to, you know, actively search up the news on a particular news website and read it there. You, you have it all in front of you, which kind of feeds into the laziness about how you accept the information that is proposing. And also, I think it might seem a bit of a stretch, but I quite enjoyed the point you made about people being becoming more individualistic as they're on the metro and they're all on their phones. Um, do you think that feeds into kind of an increasing phenomenon of basically human selfishness about, for example, in the USA, people refusing to wear masks because they believe it infringes their liberty and just in general not caring about others and maybe by a stretch leading to the rise of conservatives? I think you're right in so much as people are, are, you know, are, are unaware of their own surroundings. And I think that sometimes means that things like kindness and caring um, are reducing, where, whereas people don't even give you the time of day to say hello. And that was the whole point of the, the Zonal Tech initiative that we, we did before. It was to stop people from wandering through the foyer with their headphones on and being in their little world where you know, you're trying to say hello to somebody and they're unaware because they've got their headphones on or they're looking at their mobile phone or whatever. And, and furthermore to that, Jessica, and linking to, to what Chloe said about more extreme forms that are then given via those algorithms, isn't that addiction? Isn't that the same in all forms of addiction? 
And I, I think that there is also a growing awareness, even amongst, say, for instance, some of the year eights that I'm, I'm teaching, there is an acceptance with those parents who challenge those behaviours. And of course, those parents have to see it for themselves rather than their own addiction to you know, mobile phones, etc. But there seems to be more younger students who are aware of their own, the addictive qualities of, of social media, etc., perhaps more so than students who were coming through five or six years ago, which is another positive that I can see. Um, I just wanted to talk about how when it comes to this idea of uh, people being indoctrinated into this sort of misinformation or being pulled into this, uh, as, as Chloe mentioned, this need in order to find more like risky headlines and ideas like this, especially in terms of the misinformation aspect. I personally believe that it's very unlikely that people will be able to, to a sense, educate themselves, if that makes sense. I think some people will be able to, of course, but then, of course, you've got that issue with the echo chambers where some people think there's no possible way that they're being tricked in the sense because everything that they see in front of them corresponds to their worldview and is therefore theirs. And because of this, I personally believe that it's very, very important that people get educated about this ability to critically think about these kinds of headlines and this ability to use these services for their own good in order to find the true information, for example, by cross-checking with other sources or perhaps using uh, offered sites such as Trust for Vista or using uh, Google reverse image searches just to double check. And I feel like it's really important that we establish this as second nature for people who use social media on a regular basis. Absolutely. And you, 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 you hope that that is spreading uh, as a phenomenon. And yet I sometimes think that those who are interested in fact checking are just getting more and more tools to do that. Whilst so many of the people who actually really need those skills, even to just start visiting Snopes once in a while or First Draft, for instance, which I think is getting better and better as a fact checking uh, service as well. So I also feel like there's an issue of people thinking fact checkers are biased. So like maybe people would think that because the fact checker isn't showing what I believe to be true, then the fact checker is probably biased or something. Like, for example, if someone truly believed that wearing masks didn't help COVID, and they were so adamant on that, that nothing was going to change their mind, and they went to a fact checker and checked that, and they found out that the fact checker said it was false, they might just think that the fact checker has some issues or that it's purposefully biased against my viewpoint. And so those people who most need to use a fact checker are probably also the least inclined to believe that the fact checker is giving real and truthful information. So there's also an issue of people not believing in fact checkers and thinking fact checkers are biased and politicized and whatnot. Yep, I, I would agree with that point, Ryan. Jessica? Uh, which, on kind of an unrelated note, which is why I think school is such an important area of society that everyone should experience because not only does it teach you how to critically think you're also always actively interacting with other people and coming into contact with different perspectives which kind of allows you to analyze sort of and really learn to accept what other people say and that those interact i know there are a lot of people on social media i see who say i didn't need to go to school to learn the skills i need for my profession but you know their profession is completely unrelated to the skills they learned in school but you mean like the social skills that come from yeah, growing up the in school? So, exactly, the social skills that you learn and being able to, you know, accommodate other people's perspectives too is such an important thing that nobody should forfeit. Excellent point. Yeah, I, I fully agree, Jessica, that different perspectives are useful. But I think if, and that goes back to your point about learning how to critically think, because if you don't have the tools to do so and you're only bombarded with these different perspectives that conflict with your own, 
you can easily straw man someone's argument to reinforce your own, right? You can you can change someone's argument, you can warp it into something um, that allows an easier attacking point to make sure your cognitive bias or your your worldview is being reinforced. So I think just for fear of these alternative perspectives being subject to these logical fallacies and all these different cognitive biases that that might be on the extreme end of maybe alternative truth or in the post-truth era might might subject these perspectives against. So I think definitely learning about the toolkits that you could use to pick apart an argument, but also making sure you're not only critically trying to, you're not being a cynic, essentially. You're not looking at every piece of perspective and saying, this is for me to reinforce my point, so I'm going to criticize yours. But I think it's about just genuinely being engaged in these perspectives and, and taking something out of it that could reinforce your own or could could broaden your worldview and better inform yours as well. But speaking of big tech and their influence on our lives, um, why don't we just play more into that influence uh, by talking about even more tech? So I'm sure our tech review hosts will have lots to say about this. So let's start with you, Maxine. I'd love to hear about some of your key reflections and takeaways from all the new tech you reviewed this year in your segment. So, so far, what has been your go-to game-changing pieces of tech or software this year? Well, it's really difficult to choose because in our tech review segment, we've done quite a few pieces of technology in itself, and we've had quite a few discussions pertaining to those. For example, we've discussed Neuralink, we've discussed uh, Blue Origin. I believe that we've also discussed the, uh, the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2 as a phone as well. And on top of this, we've also done a lot of research together. We've had discussions of different types of technologies as well. So it's really hard to pick one singular or like a couple singular pieces of technology that could be used considering they all keep piling on top of each other and it's hard to even remember which pieces we've researched and what we've actually been able to explore. But if we're talking specifically about the pieces of technology that we've already covered, I'd have to say the one that brings me the most excitement and the one that brings me the most interest would be a discussion on Neuralink, which was brought forth by um, Elon Musk recently, and it was his technology that he used to implant into the brain of a pig in order to measure brain waves uh, live. So that was particularly interesting to me because I personally am a very, very big fan of psychology, and I'm a very, very big fan of computer science as well. So the idea that we could link these two together in a way that allows you to actively see the activity that's happening in the brain is incredibly interesting, even though, of course, there's going to be quite a long time before that can properly be developed. I mean, when it comes to psychology, there's a lot that we have to discuss in terms of even discovering why or how our brain or consciousness works. And then when it comes to the digital aspect as well, there's this whole question of how exactly are we going to be able to apply this in a way that truly will be able to measure our, say, our emotions or our ability to, to think, all these kinds of aspects that otherwise just happen in a kind of a subconscious space. And also, of course, as we mentioned in the Tech Review S uh, segment, it also brings up a lot of questions about privacy and this uh, human rights issues that come with actually implanting this device into your brain. But if we're discussing more towards the ideas of some general pieces of technology that we might have bumped into, this is a bit funny, but I'd say that my personal favorite is kind of just the little things that we bump into, like the little tiny things that impact me personally. For example, seeing that, oh, there's a new wireless Bluetooth drum set that's coming out. That's pretty cool. We, we can't really discuss that in the episode, but that's super cool. And also seeing like, oh, this, this piece of technology, this list, like uh, these earphones look super cool as well. Maybe I'll buy them later. But of course, that's not big enough to really discuss in the, the tech review episodes themselves. 
Yeah, so I definitely agree with Maxine on regarding like the privacy issue and like the detailed discussion despite the five minutes that we've had every episode. And the other thing that we really touched on, I think especially with the Blue Origin uh, like last episode, what was the actual you know, aim? It wasn't very clear in the long term. Yes, I guess, you know, privatization of space, you know, it calls for business expansion. But given all these money-driven motivations, it just wasn't clear to me, you know, what the long-term goal was. Um, you know, that was just something, that was just something that I, just, just one of those questions that just hung in my brain for a while. Maxine, just a quick question about Neuralink. I'm wondering whether you know how the testing for this type of invasive technology is going to be panned out before it gets implemented um, or, or sold in the market. Honestly, from what I remember, they didn't disclose that very well either. Like, they didn't properly mention exactly the way in which they would actually test this, which once again raises that issue of is it actually ethical? If they're implanting this directly into animals, as they did in the live demonstration that Elon Musk did, it raises the question, how many animals have they done this to before? Whether those have been successful, what kind of harm has come to that? And what kind of harm will arise from further testing? It's quite shady, honestly, but it's something that we'll have to really just wait and see, in my opinion. Okay, Rowan, given that very, very interesting discussion on Neuralink and also our impassioned discussion on the new iPhone last time we spoke, I'd love to hear your thoughts here as well. So for, for you personally, what were your favorites um, in tech from this year? And did the iPhone release live up to your expectations at all? Well, I think this was quite an interesting iPhone release. I'm not sure if many viewers will be able to remember this, but... A few years ago, there was a time where Apple released one iPhone and everyone would queue up to buy that one iPhone. But now it seems that you can pretty much mix and match to make whatever iPhone you want, really. I mean, we've got four to choose from this year. And I think there have been some genuinely interesting additions to the smartphone industry. Something that really stood out to me was when I was looking at the LiDAR scanning system which could be something that could be brand new as a technological innovation in terms of the fact that it could really be useful in aiding us in our everyday lives for us to be able to see how exactly that new pair of trainers would fit um, without actually having to try it on. That seems quite fascinating. You could do that with your phone, for example. And not to mention having access to Dolby Vision on an iPhone is quite handy for passionate filmmakers who do prefer to use iPhones as opposed to cameras. Um, I know there's a sizable community out there that feel that way. Or for just people who like to take videos, they look even more professional as a result. Either way, it certainly enhances what is already quite an impressive camera system. With regards to technology, something that you could say has really caught my eye this year would have to be the Focals by North. For someone who wears glasses such as myself, the prospect of owning a pair of smart glasses, if you like, is very cool, and my dreams of being able to live in the Matrix can finally come true. Um, so I look forward to seeing how that continues to evolve over the course of the next year or so as well. So I'll definitely have to be quite certain, though, with research and see how it's evolved before I consider investing in a pair myself. 
I was just gonna add, you know, how skeptical should we be of Vocals by North given how the Google Glass panned out? I'm hoping it's not the, the same situation, but I'm just wondering how much research has gone into this and kind of what phase of the implementation and development they're at. But yeah, anyway, um, from a pedagogical standpoint, Mr. Williamson, what software, whether new or old, has been particularly helpful for you in 2020? Just before I get on to that, I was just going to mention in relation to Rohan's point there that with regards to focals, personally, I think it's about the cost that's going to be the big issue there. Um, they are still very expensive generally. The Google Glass was heralded as the next big thing, wasn't it? That it was going to be as big as you know the iPad was when it was first introduced by Apple. And it was nothing of the sort. I, I still, you know, the number of times recently where I've thought to have a pair of glasses or shades or something like that on, where you can look around a city and you have some kind of augmented reality so that you can look at buildings, for instance, in Hong Kong, and you should be able to look around and start to receive data, which tells you that's the building that I'm going towards. So, you know, you look at the IFC and it has the name of it, you know, somewhere on, on some kind of a visual screen. So that if you were traveling around a new environment, you know, the days of having to, you know, look at your phone and use Google Maps and everything would be gone. You know, you, you'd be looking at street signs via the, the, the kind of screen readout. The test with all of these kind of uh, focal tech context is that can you do that without them being a massive distraction while you're wandering around? You know, how can you still have your vision fixed on where you're going whilst at the same time this information is providing a kind of informed sense of direction? And I think that's going to be the big challenge for all of these um, tech institutes. Coming back to your point about pedagogical software or new and old, etc. been quite a few. Uh, I've mentioned on the show before, I really enjoyed using Parlay with my classes for Socratic seminar discussions, uh, which uh, Maxine has, has used with me in uh, her film studies class. Um, the film studies students enjoyed the kind of student-led nature of the application itself, because it's one of those situations, a bit like today, actually, whereas the teacher, I can just sit back and let you as the students take over, which is lovely to see. And more recently at, at Miss Curran's insistence, and I have to be honest with you, I'm a little bit scared of her. So when she tells me to do these things, I just do what I'm told. So I started using Pear Deck with your class, Chloe, in terms of TOK. And I was quite impressed um, with what I've seen so far. This creates a kind of interactive aspect of each lesson, which means you can always receive formative feedback during the lesson itself. There's a question actually, and it was interesting, Chloe, because you asked me a question halfway through the lesson about, are you gonna show us those results? And of course, there's a question there as to whether the, the, the practitioner in the room, the facilitator of the lesson, wants to share that feedback directly or whether that's information for them in terms of, uh, you know, making improvements on their own lessons. So that was quite an interesting point for me. But it's certainly a way of making sure that no students get left behind in a lesson. And finally, I started experimenting with voice to text, as a, a few of you know, a few years ago, but found the process to be initially very clunky and it didn't save me much time. However, during guidance day, I gave it another a shot and wrote student notes on each of my tutees, including Maxine, at high speed. And I'd estimate that each one of them took about 30 seconds to one minute of my audio to create really lengthy reflective paragraphs on each student. And this could be a bit of a game changer going forward. Uh, what about from a student perspective then, Chloe? I know you've mentioned to me before that you went kind of the other way and you've gone with speech with text and then speech software or something along those lines? 
Yeah, I have. Um, and, you know, when you're pouring over 50 page research articles on housing prices in Hong Kong, um, text to speech and, and I'm seeing Jessica and Paul cringing because I know they're economic students as well. Um, but text to speech is just helpful to have someone read that out to you. And personally, I think listening has always been more efficient for me as, as a medium of understanding, um, especially when I'm trying to understand a more dense uh, section of information in a, a limited amount of time. So, you know, with regards to technology, I recently came across this app called Speechify, and their founder, Cliff Weitzman, has actually a really interesting worldview on on tech and ethics. So I'd highly recommend watching any of his interviews. But as an aside, it's essentially a text-to-speech app where they have this graduating speech function where every 10 to 20 minutes, it would essentially increase the speed of your speech by a small increment. So you could be listening to 1.5 times speed, and then 20 minutes later, without you noticing, that could go up to 1.7, and then 20 minutes later, 1.8, 1.9, and then before you know it, you're listening on two times, 2.5 times. So subconsciously, your listening speed is actually increasing, not only because you're listening more, but because the program is almost training you to do so. So it, it's interesting how these programs are training us now. It's, it's not even machine learning the other way around. So, you know, lots of, lots of implications around text-to-speech. It's also like living your life, though, at kind of fast forward. Don't you think that's very, very apt for the, the editing practices that we watch our television and film in, where so often things are in such high speed in terms of the cutting practices? It seems as though the applications that we're using now are kind of literally fast forwarding things for us. And it's, it's about time, isn't it? The time is such a premium. I mean, you think about just our media, even our modern media compared to medias in the 40s, 30s, you watch Gone with the Wind, it's slow. It's really slow compared to like a, a Marvel action superhero movie. It's incredibly quick paced. And I think media has just adapted and, and transitioned to the way that we as humans think. And I think to some extent, it's the other way around as well. You know, the quickening pace of media has allowed us to think quicker and, and have to absorb information quicker because we just have so many different sources of information that if we if we don't speed up the rate at which we consume content and understand content, then we can't get through all this information that we're provided with. And, you know, the same goes for audiobooks, but the, the debate always lies in are we trading off enjoyment? You know, I, I want to read 100 Years of Solitude at a normal pace. I want to absorb the book versus for a research article, I'm okay with reading it at two times speed. So I think there are certain trade-offs that we do have to consider to think about um, whether it'd be worth it to, to sacrifice entertainment and enjoyment just for speed. So, you know, as we get into tech's role in the arts and humanities and this this cutting edge software that we've so often spoken about, I think this is a great segue into what we envision for the future of technology and discussing potential emerging fields that we and also you as listeners can keep an eye on in the next year. So what emerging technologies are you most excited about going into the new year? Uh, so there are some like technologies which I'd like to see next year. Like, for example, I'm always excited to see what the new phones, different types of iPhones and even Android phones that have, like what type of breakthrough new mobile phone technology there will be. And I mean, the rollout of 5G as well, I would really like to see that garner adoption on a wide scale as 5G really does seem to be way better than 4G, especially the millimeter wave type 5G, which is like way, way faster than Wi-Fi. But unfortunately right now that's still extremely limited 
And I think right now it's still only available on Verizon in a few neighborhoods and a few big cities in the US. So that will probably still take a lot more time. But even if the standard 5G could be rolled out like to more people, I think I would also be really excited to see that. And another thing I'd also like to see is the type of transportation technologies that have been coming out, like going to space, for example, with Elon Musk, SpaceX and like Hyperloop and all that type of new technology. I'm also really excited to see where those new technologies will be developed into next year as autonomous driving and that type of stuff is really garnering in um, popularity recently. So um, that's also very exciting. And lastly, I think another thing that I'd really be excited in seeing is recently Apple developed the M1 chip on the new MacBooks. And the first chip already seems to be way, way better than Intel's chip. So I'm really excited to see um, what the next generation of that chip could do and how much better it could be over um, this one. So I'm very excited to see the next generation of Apple's Mac chip. Cool, very articulate, interesting response as well, Ryan. So the one thing that I've found really interesting is with Apple over the years, has sort of shifted their approach and their programs and their their user experience closer to the iPhone. So I've recently been running a beta version of iOS 11, which has just been released about uh, just under a month ago, I think. And I see all the apps in like little square things, which is very similar to iPhone. I don't really have many that many thoughts about it, although it, it would be interesting for the future of how Apple sort of pathing its approach to making the experience closer towards a, mo- a mobile device. I guess what I'm most looking forward to is further developments in quantum computing. This is just mainly because the ability for it to do calculations is, is far greater than any normal computer can do right now. And finally, maybe we'll have a working economic theory that can accurately describe <laughs> economic events of the world and predict recessions into the future instead of the shambles of macroeconomic theory we have now. So that, I guess that's what I'm looking forward to. And this is something that's going to stretch very far into the future. But in terms of hardware, I'm always looking forward to the next release of the Google Pixel. and maybe I will be able to get my hands on a 6A or something if that comes out sometime in the future. Maxine? Oh my gosh, I feel much less sophisticated about my answer now. (laughs) I was was just going to talk about video games, actually. (laughs) In particular, I was going to talk about VR, virtual reality. So recently, VR has been pretty much like... It's been improving at a pretty rapid race. In 2019, we had the release of uh, Dexta, I think, which came out with their uh, force feedback haptic gloves. Then we had the following release of, I think it was called Telesuit, where you had a full body, uh, full force haptic bodysuit that when you play games or when you encounter these kinds of resistances as you're watching videos or playing games on this VR headset, you're actively feeling at every point of your body the force that the body in this virtual reality is actually feeling. And now we're having even more advanced applications to these. So for example, a wire reality came out pretty recently and it's this haptic feedback device that provides an even more realistic application of this kind of feeling that people get when you know they they just touch things with their hands uh, regularly and the the way that they managed to achieve this is actually by using shoulder mounted strings so they're using active force in the real world in order to apply this sort of theoretical force that you're feeling in the virtual reality and this of course is super interesting to me because well one i like games number two i also really enjoy the idea of thinking about how this could progress in the future like 
in the future, will we be able to taste things virtually? Will we be able to smell things virtually? Will we be able to technically live within a 100% virtual world if we so chose to do that? And it's honestly super fascinating. I, I agree. And, and that also as a, a little kind of uh, plug perhaps for future episodes, we have Zach Diakadis as part of our alumni. I used to teach Zach well, a few years ago now, and he has been keeping me up to speed with the developments that have been taking place in the VR world. And it would be fantastic to have him on the show. Maybe Maxine, you could come on the show as well and you could talk about some of these exciting developments. I quite like the idea of just disappearing at some point later in my life to Middle Earth. And I don't know, maybe living as a Numenorian in the second age or something like that. So if you, if you can't find me by the time I'm in my 70s or 80s, you know where to look for me. I'll be in a VR world. Probably do my own podcast there with Sauron and the others. Who have we got left? Rohan. Well, yeah, um, I'm sort of going to take it in a bit of a different direction. I'm quite looking forward to, as somebody that watches a lot of TV series and films on Netflix, I'm quite interested to see whether there is going to be more of this sort of user is in control of how the story progresses. Because I know that the likes of Black Mirror had initially experimented with this. I think there was a Bear Grylls thing that came on to Netflix as well at one point. So I haven't really seen much since then, and I am interested to know whether this is going to become a thing of the future or whether it's going to be something that was experimented with and very quickly died out. I'm particularly interested to see if watching TV is going to become a more sort of active approach in terms of the viewer is going to be the one that controls where the storyline goes or whether it's going to maintain its current status of being a very passive experience for the viewer in which they come home and they're tired or if you're like me you really don't want to be doing any studying so it's better to just procrastinate and watch Netflix for a few hours on end uh, I mean minutes um, and so it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes and I'm interested to see how that takes place in 2021. That's interesting. Yep. So I came across this program called AI Dungeon, and basically the system's been updated with, with this program called GPT-3, and it's basically a free text adventure game. So you can throw any scenario at it, and it will continue your story. And, and it's quite interesting. Um, I was experimenting with it, and you can see the points at which it breaks down. So in one of the scenes, it was like, punch my fist against the glass ceiling. And then the response for them would be punch it through a wooden door. So you can you can kind of figure out where the program glitches, but I think beyond these glitches and small mishaps, it's actually quite an interesting program to look into if you're, if you're interested in kind of this uh, user-directed text and this very automated sense of creating your own story, especially in film and media. And it may well be that the interactive nature of television that you were talking about, uh, Rohan, combines with the kind of thing that both Maxine and Chloe have talked about there. And, you know, you could be looking at more interactive experience, more active experiences within a virtual reality world setting where, you know, the computer game industry meets television. There's some interesting kind of, I suppose, crossover area there uh, moving into the future. I guess that's about as much as 2020 has, has offered us, as if it wasn't enough. What a year it's been when we think through so many of the extraordinary things that have taken place in society this year. I'd like to thank Paul, Rohan, Maxine, Ryan and Jessica for their excellent contributions today, as well as my co-host, Chloe Jazzy-Lau. We will be back soon with more tech-related content in 2021. And I'm sure you will join us when we all sincerely hope that 2021 is going to be a better year than 2020. Stay safe. 
wherever you're listening to the show. And have a great holiday and new year when it comes. In the meantime, as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. What would you like us to discuss? If you have any ideas, questions or feedback, then please write to digileaders at webmail.sis.edu.hk. As always, thanks for listening.